So folks, as we start this new year, let's uh, be faithful. Let's be systematic in our giving. Don't wait till the end of year. Join us in uh, being regular with your offerings. So many of you are. Thank you for going the extra mile. And this morning we're rejoicing. We actually, the treasurer told me when we add up all the funds that would go into the combined budget, we went over by about $20,000. Amen? We're going to use that to advance God's cause. We're all working and sacrificing together. We praise the Lord for those of you who could do more. We praise the Lord for those of you who could do less. And all in between, this is how it works. Many small streams channeled into a mighty river. Let's pray. Father, we're here before you, and we are asking for your presence to continue to be with us. Thank you for the special music, for the opportunity to give our offerings. Thank you, Lord, for the songs of praise we could sing and a reason to sing them. And now I pray, Lord, bless us as we open the word in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I am still in the series on the healing presence of Jesus. I've entitled my message, The Savior and the Second Mile. I want to tell you a principle that's very important. Most of you are aware of it. My my job to tell you many new things, but to remind you of things you already know. When my boys were small, I understood how important it was that they learned to work. Working is a practical expression of love to a spouse, to children, to friends, to parents. Teach your children how to work. Be kind about it and persistent, but make sure they understand that work is a kind of loving service. When I was uh, traveling up and down Route 31, I I had stopped and went into Lowe's and there was a lawnmower that someone had brought back and it was marked down to half price, which was my kind of buying moment, and I bought it. And for about the next eight or ten years, on every Sunday from April to October, my boys, along with my wife at times, praise the Lord for a very down-to-earth wife, uh, we had a family lawn mowing experience. We, we, the boys had a little business. And of course, mom and dad are what really made it go in the beginning. Eventually it became theirs. And along the way, I tried to teach them to do a better job than they were being paid to do. I tried to teach them that when you serve out of love and it's a ministry, it's different than when you simply work for pay. Working for pay has its own reward. Working for love has an internal or an intrinsic reward. And those intrinsic rewards are what motivate the Christian. They're what take us to a higher level of excellence. There were many years, just for you parents that are actively parenting right now, when I thought I was an abject failure, okay? So keep your courage. But over time, things kicked in. And with a lot of uh, inspection and uh, encouragement and accountability, This morning, I want to build on these principles about ministering instead of the drudgery of simply working. There is an element in the Christian experience which raises service to an offering as opposed to simply a transaction, a transaction for money. And especially inside our families, our church families, and the places where we work, but indeed everywhere, we are to take into that something that's unique, that's otherworldly. So this morning, I want to point you in the way of heaven. And the way to heaven is the second mile. Take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the first of three chapters 
which we call the Sermon on the Mount. When we come up to our small groups towards the end of this month, which I hope each one will join, be a part of a small group, we're going to be studying this Sermon on the Mount from the book called The Mount of Blessing. Jesus really doesn't have a sermon recorded in total anywhere else in the Bible. And as we come to the end of chapter 5, Jesus is going to bring to our mind a principle. It is a principle that will open the doors to a different kind of readiness to receive the healing touch of Jesus. Now, I know at the beginning of this message that I'm talking to a wide spectrum of people. There are some here today because their friends came to church here today. There are some here today because this is what they've done for many years. There are some here today who really do want to do good, but they're kind of busy and God's an add-on to their life. There's some here today for whom God is everything and they won't miss this appointment or other appointments to be with him and his people. Wherever that spectrum is for you today, it's my hope that the Holy Spirit shows you and touches you so that you desire to be a follower, a servant of the Savior of the second mile. When Jesus comes down to this part of his sermon, he begins talking about things that will get the attention of the world because the world doesn't act like this. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 39. But I say unto you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And then this verse that has troubled Christians, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't want to lower the standard of Christian perfection. It's not mine to do. Christ is the example. The good news here, Christ shows the way. And before we're all done today, I hope you understand how this final verse in the chapter can come to fulfillment in your life without the kind of intentionality that you might think. When we think about the love of God, we have to realize that there are some communions that have no profession of God that love better than some churches. This is not a pleasant thing for me to say as a pastor, but it's true. And since I have to deal in what's true, I'm going to deal in the fact that there are communions of people that don't really love each other. We've even come to the place in time where we realize that some religious communions are actually toxic. They're negative. Now, you might find yourself in one of those. I don't believe that's the experience of this church I'm in right now, but you might be listening online. God has not given you permission necessarily to abandon the journey of those people, but I think what we talk about here today could help change it. It's important for us to understand that Jesus always practiced what he preached. And I want to focus in on one verse, but it's in the context of love. These last 
Nine verses of this chapter are about a unique way of living. They are not an admonition to let evil people run roughshod over you. They are not an admonition to stand by while evil people are violent and despicable. We don't have time. I'm not going to try to cover all of the things that they're not. I want to focus on one verse in particularly, which is verse 41. So look there with me. It says, whoever or if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This is an admonition that certainly was understood by those who were listening. So I was struck by the fact that it says whoever. There weren't too many whoever's in that society that could do this. The Greek word here reveals that there's a holdover from several empires before. You see, the Persians had determined that in the days of their kings, any kingly command or any postal message that needed to be sent would be sent with intentionality from the king. But should there be a break in the network of getting the message out, anyone could be conscripted to carry the message for the Persians. Don't think this too terribly strange. When our good allies from Great Britain were not our allies in the same way some 200 years ago, their troops were quartered in our homes. Their horses were stored in our stables. Our food was their food. This quartering of men in times of military dominance is not particularly unusual. But the Romans did not release this, this type or this mentality of operating when they took over the world scene. And the Romans developed the best road systems in the world and they were marked out with mile markers. And as you were traversing down one of these Roman roads, you might see a little brigade or troop of Romans coming towards you. It could be terribly bad news because as they came up close to you, depending on how long it had been since they had shouldered their packs, they could say, hey, you, come here. And then you'd lay your shoulder underneath the leather straps that carried their Roman burden. And you'd walk a mile. Now the whoever that says, says to you, take my burden one mile, every person listening to them knew that was a dreaded Roman. That was a hated Roman which sets up this sermon in a little different way because all of us have somebody in our life that perhaps really doesn't care about us, which makes it hard for us to care about them. Everybody has somebody in their life that rubs them the wrong way. And Jesus doesn't say, that's fine, just go around them. Jesus doesn't say, abandon them, don't care. Jesus says, no, listen, the most hated person in your life and the person that intersects in your daily activity is not there by accident. This is an architected, engineered experience. God has allowed these things to happen. And can you imagine what it would be like if one of these Roman soldiers met Jesus and his disciples on the road? Now you have to remember one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. That meant that he particularly hated the Romans. And it would have been an unusual thing should Jesus be shouldered with a Roman soldier's pack. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Now, before I go any farther, I want to bring one more dynamic into this message. I'm reading here from one of my favorite authors. And this is what she says. She says, we have but one probation in which to form character. And our destiny depends upon the manner of character we form. In other words, there aren't going to be sinners in heaven. We're not taking our bad habits, our lack of loveliness to heaven. This world is our chance to become like Jesus. 
Those who on earth who have formed characters that through the grace of Christ bear the heavenly mold will be ripened through the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit for the eternal reward. I like that. I know that we pray that we would learn of Jesus, but you need to know something. There's a ripening that goes on that is sometimes nothing but supernaturally miraculous. He's changing you and you don't even know it and you aren't even trying. Now that's not to say that we don't exercise a cooperation and an effort to try. They become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. It's a realization of the fact that our characters are Christ-like that calls forth the song of praise and thanksgiving to God and to the Lamb. So when we all get there and we realize we've become like Jesus, we're going to erupt into praise. Those who appreciate the goodness, the mercy, and the love of Christ, I'm going to say those words again, goodness, mercy, and love, and by beholding him become changed into his image, will be partakers of eternal life. Now, I have good news for you today, friends. If you take what I'm saying in this sermon and put it into practice, you will be in heaven. You say, is that legalism? Is that righteousness by works? No, I'll show you. I just promise you, if you follow the Savior of the second mile, you'll be changed in ways you may not even be aware of. And along the way, you'll be surprised. And others will take note that you've been with Jesus. Goodness, mercy, and love. By beholding him, we become changed. We become partakers of eternal life. The attributes of their character are like those of Christ, and they cannot fail of the rest that remains for the people. Okay, listen to two or three more sentences. If we would see heaven, we must have heaven below. Now, this is getting really good. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. I'm going to read that again. We must have a heaven to go to heaven in. We must have heaven in our families through a continual approaching unto God. All right. So let's combine a couple things. The Jesus of the second mile and bringing heaven down to earth to have a heaven to go to heaven in. So let's go back to Jesus with the Roman soldiers. Could we do that? Here they come, little troop. And here comes another little troop. This one's led by Jesus. Two little troops. They're going to pass on a Roman road, except for one thing. The Roman soldiers are tired and thirsty, and these Jews can be their slaves for at least a mile. So they stop the troop. We have no record of this. You say it's just sanctified imagination, but Jesus did practice what he preached. And the two troops stop because the one commands so. And they direct that their packs are to be carried one mile in the opposite direction that Jesus and his disciples are going. Some of them are grumbling as they put them on, but not Jesus. And Jesus, as he shoulders his pack, walks next to the person to whom the pack belongs to. And as they walk along, since Jesus brought heaven down to earth and was taking, making a way for us to go back to heaven, you can be certain for a few moments, maybe 20 minutes or so, this Roman soldier's going to have heaven next to him as he walks down a Roman road. And as they visit, Jesus takes an actual interest in the man. Listen, he's not doing a religious duty. That Roman is not his project. This is someone he actually cares for. Are you hearing what I'm talking about? There is no substitute for actually loving the people Jesus puts in your path. This is the transformation journey. If you come and follow Jesus, you will be called to love your neighbor as yourself. Good news. 
You can love like you're loved. You can give away what you're getting. And as they walk down that Roman road, probably many of the other 12 are quiet, enduring, not enjoying. But Jesus himself has found this as a divine opportunity to connect. And as they walk down the road and he learns about the man, his wife, his children, his pre-military service, his hopes for when he's out of the military, etc. And they come to that marker on the road. The Roman looks at Jesus and says, okay, you can put it down. And Jesus looks over at him and smiles and says, let's go one more mile. Listen, you talk about jaws dropping open. You talk about hearts opening up. The hated Roman being loved by the true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Bridges are built, but Jesus is suffering to build them. If you think that building a bridge will not require some suffering for you, you need to stop and think again. By the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. We were, he was bruised for our iniquities. He took our suffering and he calls us to take a measure of suffering love motivated by that yoke that is easy and that burden that is light. Not that a pack was, was light for those 1,000 steps that made up a mille passum, a Roman mile. But the love of Christ in the heart for all humanity took drudgery and made it into ministry. And Jesus, like us, are called to be a drink offering poured out for a dying world. Now, I want you to understand something. Before Jesus finished, I, and actually before he started, prove it, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going to say. You know that Syrophoenician woman to whom Jesus said it's not right to take the food from off the table and give it to the dogs? And how about, how about that uh, woman in John chapter 4 who's been married five times and Jesus says, go call your husband. You know, Jesus has the ability to probe into the most intimate dynamics of human relating because there is an atmosphere about Jesus. Heaven came down and glory was in his soul. And you know, friends, as heaven comes down and glory is in our soul, there are doors that are opened by the very essence of who we are. There is an atmosphere that surrounds us that speaks peace, joy, kindness, consideration. Indeed, as Jesus walked that mile and that second mile, there were Romans talking about the strangest Jew they ever met. But I want to tell you something. We are to be the most peculiar people anybody else ever meets too because inside of us we have been filled. Our love cup is filled with the knowledge of how precious we are to God. His children, forgiven, redeemed in a transforming relationship. This is why it's so very important that we're not half in love with the world and half in love with God. If I could envision it for you, I'd hold a cup. And in the cup, there'd be a certain amount of water. We'll call it the water of life. If you were to bump into me and the cup was just barely a little bit in the bottom, it'd slosh around in the cup. If the cup was half full, it might even make it up to the rim. But if I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus and I'm filling my love cup knowing in spite of my weaknesses, my past, the people that have mistreated me, the opportunities I didn't get, all the things that are wrong are not beyond the redeeming touch of Jesus. And if the cup is full and you bump into me, out sloshes the water of life. But you know what? 
If I'm too busy to be with Jesus, if I'm in love with the world, if I'm afraid to let go of Satan's hand because I think Jesus' hand might lead me down a road I don't want to go, then I'm not going to be able to be that person. What I'm here to tell you, as I mentioned in one of my first sermons on this series, and that is that formal religion is to be dreaded. There is an animating love in the heart of God for us. And when that love really touches us and we have not allowed the world to short circuit it, that love flows out. I'll tell you, you know somebody who's a person of the second mile. You do. I know lots. And these are the kind of people who rarely, and they're very human, but they rarely complain. And they are people who have found an amazing amount of strength because day by day they're doing what Isaiah 40 said. They're waiting on the Lord. And in that quiet communion with God, their religion becomes so superbly practical that in spite of a a growing knowledge of their unfitness for heaven, they have a growing and a changing nature that's like God's. They're being transformed. They're being ripened. This is the Jesus of the second mile. Now, I want to contrast two people. I want to contrast Mary Magdalene, of whom I spoke of last Sabbath. Seven times the demons are cast out of her, and I want to contrast her with Peter, the preeminent or one of the preeminent of the apostles. And I want to come down to the very last week of their life. On that very last week of their life, Mary is breaking an alabaster box of perfume over the feet of Jesus and getting in trouble for it. Not by Jesus. The very night before Jesus dies, he's talking to Peter and he says, Peter, tomorrow or tonight, you're going to betray me. I want you to see the difference because I would like for there to be a breakthrough for as many as would desire it here. Peter says, no, Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus says, I'm telling you that tomorrow before the rooster crows three times, you will. No, Jesus, I'll die and I will go to prison if I need to for you. And then there's Mary Magdalene, so stuck in her sin that she needs the delivering hand of Jesus seven times. Where are we on the spectrum of being able to hear Jesus? Are we over here at the Peter side? Uh Uh-uh. How fragrant was Peter? (laughs) Come on. In a few hours, he'll whip the sword off and he's going to go for the head and only get the ear. I don't need that kind of fragrance in my life. But here's Mary. All 12 of those men run away. But she follows Jesus. And when they get to the cross, the disciples are standing on the outer circle and she's right up close. What can Jesus say to me? You need to know how much he loves you so that you can hear him say to you what will set you free. You need to know how much he loves you so that you can be a fountain that flows out like stream in the desert according to the book of Isaiah or like the the symbolism from the reality of the Israelites wandering from Egypt to Canaan. Our lives are to have this beauty to where when the world bumps into us, they don't get the anxiety and the anger that the rest of the world gets. They get the love of Jesus. 
Now, there are some challenging relationships we have inside our families, inside our churches, and there are places for iron to sharpen iron and for there to be dynamics that heal dysfunction. But this morning, what I'm wanting to talk with you about is this. How full is your cup? Are you receiving the refreshing from God so that when somebody comes into your presence, they realize heaven is around me? And there are a thousand ways the devil's trying to rob you from having that heavenly presence. But I'm here to tell you, there is something so powerful about the second mile that the world may not want to listen, but they have to think about it. So the question I ask is, did Jesus practice what he preached? He did. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. This word... Angaria. This Greek word is only used two times in the book of Matthew. And I'm going to show you the other time. Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to begin in verse 27. We're in the crucifixion. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand. And they knelt down before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe, they took it off him, and they put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Simon, of Cyrene, named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. What Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 is what Simon the Cyrene is about to experience with the crossbeam of the instrument of torture. Jesus is so physically weak, he cannot bear the instrument of death. And so they force Simon to carry it. It's the same thing. I shouldn't be surprised that from Matthew 5, the next place we should see this expression would be at the ultimate moment of going farther than anybody would ever dream someone would go to save us. Jesus gives up the cross member, but he has not laid down the burden. Now, this is a strange thing that I want everyone to understand. For three hours, Jesus hung on the cross and everybody could make fun of him and gawk at him and it could be the entertainment for the Passover weekend. The famous one, the Judean rabbi, the one who could heal the blind and make the lame walk and make the deaf hear and fix withered arms and straightened up the backs of old ladies and and bring the dead back to life. They cry out around the cross, physician, heal yourself. You healed others, save yourself. If you're the Messiah, come down off there. Can you imagine the gall of wicked human beings, ignorant, willfully ignorant of the one who was hanging on the tree, who one who spoke the substance of our being into existence. As Jesus hangs there for three hours, 
There's an opportunity for everybody that wants to show their true colors to show them. Unfortunately, everybody did. And they represent you and me. In the middle of the day, things go dark. Jesus is hid by the darkness. And during those three dark hours, it appears to Christ that he will be eternally lost. I'm here to tell you, friends, from that Thursday night in, in, at Gethsemane to this Friday afternoon at Golgotha, Jesus is carrying the burden that was yours and that was mine. My sins about took him out in that olive grove across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem. He just wanted some people to pray for him. It was as if the entire world was rolling on top of him and destroying his very being as if he was being squeezed out between the rollers of an old wash machine. And as he laid there sweating great drops of blood, pleading for some other way, he always said, I'll go the second mile. He surrenders to the journey, 30 years of ignominy and insult, 30 years of suffering and distress. That was enough, you could say. He was already a perfect man. Why the rest of the way? Because it was my burden that he needed to pick up and your burden that he needed to pick up. And as Jesus exits Pilate's hall of judgment, he's not strong enough physically to carry the physical burden, but the weight of the world is on his shoulders. But I want to tell you something. He has never quit drinking from the fountain of his father's love. And as they're nailing him to the cross, he can say, Father, forgive them. This is not ordinary, but it is something that can become a part of you and me. And as Jesus is shut in by that darkness, finally, somewhere towards the end, he cries out, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Because my burden and your burden were on the shoulders of Jesus. He's hanging there with a weight that we will never in all of eternity understand. Now hear me carefully. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm going to tell you how this works. When you allow Christ's love to come into your heart and you allow that love become the motivating influence of who you are. I didn't say you always feel like doing everything he said. You won't. I've been a parent for almost 30 years. I would hardly ever say the children were a burden. I've been married for 35 years almost and all the sacrifices that my wife has made to love me and grow with me and me to her, they're not a burden. Why? Because love has taken us up over the mountaintops of distress and discomfort. Love has given us the endurance for the cold nights and the uncertainty, the insecurity, the pain and the hurt. What I need you to understand is that what Christ was saying in the last verses of Matthew chapter 5 is this, and that is if you will learn to love like your father by following him, you will become just like him. And in the process, you may not see yourself as saved, but everybody that's watching will know that's what's happening. 
There was a moment in Christ's life when he was at the highest of his glory while he had no sin of his own and all of ours and the world's watching and Jesus thinks to himself, this is it, I'm terrible, it's over. By faith he sees beyond what he's experiencing and he knows his father is good anyway. But what I want you to understand is a paradox. It's, it's somewhat of a, it, it's a riddle almost that as you follow Jesus in love, you will become more like him even though when you look at yourself you see you're more unfit than you ever thought you were before. This happened to Christ on the cross. It will happen to those who follow him. They will not see themselves as one to be promoted in the eyes of anybody. But they will be willing to keep following the path of love. And in the process, unbeknownst to them, they are ripening and being changed because love is how you fulfill the law, Paul says in the book of Galatians. And he even says, by bearing one another's burdens. Listen. The only way to heaven is to follow the Savior of the second mile. It's the only way. Coming to church won't do it. Reading your Bible won't do it. Those are all important things. Listening to your preacher won't do it. Listening to the words of your mother, whether she's alive or gone. Father, here or not. It won't do it. Everybody has to decide, can I hear the voice of love when it plucks the cords of my heart and will there be a responding cord that I choose? If the answer is no, it doesn't matter how well you're acquainted with the 28 fundamental beliefs and we all should be. There is a battle to be fought with self. When love comes in, it gives the motivation to go up and over. By looking to Jesus, we're not stuck on the road of life, professing religion, but not practicing the heart of God. This is the glory of the Savior of the second mile. And when you and I fill our lives up with too many unimportant things, we lose that love. That's what happens. There's a Laodicean message because there's a Laodicean people. They become rich and increase with goods and sure enough, they do like almost every other generation. They love the goods and despise the giver eventually. Oh, we're not there right now, of course. We don't despise Jesus. All of that's going to come into view when someday we can't buy and sell. That's when it's all going to peel wide open and we're going to see what we couldn't see about each other. Friends, it would be my hope and wish that every single one of you would be on the side of love when that day comes saying, Jesus has taken me this far. I'm going to stay on the second mile. Listen, you got people you work with. Some of them you don't like. You've got people you're related to. Some of them aren't nice. Some of them are chafing because they've sought to focus on their needs and they're constantly recognizing that you're not meeting them. Hey, if you're one of those person friends this morning, I want to talk to you. Quit focusing on your needs and start letting the love of Christ meet those needs so you can meet the needs of others around you because I want to tell you, it's a needy, needy world. We have Jesus. Jesus took my burdens to the cross. He picked up my backpack. He went beyond that. He who knew no sin became my sin. That was me that was crucified with Christ. And I want to tell you something. His stripes stand in for my stripes. And by his woundedness and his suffering, I'm healed. 
I want to especially talk to those of you who are drinking deep from the wells of salvation right now. Friends, don't become weary in well-doing. You keep going back to the fountain. Let the streams flow out from you. Let the green grass and the trees grow up along the canals of Christ's love. He who waters will be watered also. I am begging you. Nothing makes this message come to life like a deeper drink from the well of salvation. That woman in John chapter 4 started out a little, a little curt with Jesus. Who do you think you are? A Jewish man asking me. I've got the upper hand. That's a deep well. Jesus says, well, if you would have asked me, I would have given you a drink. Oh, how are you going to do that? Jesus says, the water I'll give you, it's going to well up. Is it welling up, friends? If not, why not? I'm not asking you to be gauging your Christianity on an emotion at the moment here. But if there is no emotion for Jesus, something is wrong. And what I, I must say today is that this year will be a momentous year for this world. I'm not a prophet. At least not in that sense. I'm exercising the prophetic voice out of the prophetic office in the sense of calling you to edification, exhortation, and consolation. We talked about that in Jesus on Prophecy. Every parent should fulfill the same role. Every teacher the same role. Teach what's right, give encouragement and strong exhortation, even rebuke to do what's right, and then give comfort as people try to be like Jesus. But friends, the world needs a a real Christianity. And Jesus said, if you want to test yours, this is how you do it. When Johann Sebastian Bach was a 10-year-old, he was already a virtual orphan. He was under the custody, uh, custody of his older brother, 24 years old, Gustav. The problem was Johann at 10 years of age was a better musician than his older brother and the only music that he would give to Johann to practice was easy stuff. And Johann would beg Gustav, let me have the harder music. I want to play the, play the work of the masters. And he wouldn't. So for six months every night, Johann would get up, he would sneak down the stairs, he would go to that hutch where the work of the masters were, he would reach between the bars, he would pull the book off the shelf, he would go upstairs, and in the light of the moon, in the shelf of his window, he copied off his own copy of the music. Finally, when it was all done on a Sunday morning, Gustav went off to church, and Johann stayed behind and got on the clavier and started playing. And oh, did he love that music. He played the second day when his brother was gone. And on the third day, his brother caught him. He said, oh, you made a copy of the music. He took it from him. Johann was crushed six months. The next day, he sat down at the piano. And he discovered that six months of copying the music had put the music in him. Friends, the world needs that music. It needs the servants of the Savior of the second mile. In your home, at your work, in this church, 
wherever you're at. Oh, it's going to be inconvenient. You don't think it was inconvenient in the day in which the feet were the primary modus operandi of moving? You don't think it was inconvenient to meet a troop of Romans and turn around and walk a mile this way? And what if you went an extra one? You were now four miles extra. And by the way, walking four extra miles on a journey of 10 or 20 is a pretty big percentage. Don't think it's not going to be inconvenient. Loving a lost world is exceptionally inconvenient. But it is as wonderfully glorious as you watch God work in you and through you. What are you going to choose in 2020? It is time for Seventh-day Adventist Christianity to recapture the beauty of a God who loved us enough to pick up our burden and go all the way to the gates of hell so that you and I could go all the way to the gates of heaven. This morning, friends, in this year, starting today, I'm inviting each of you to recommit to the radical religion of Jesus. Not to the laissez-faire form of Seventh-day Adventism that's found its way into the ranks of our 21st century Western churches. I'm calling you to the radical religion of love. And there's nothing like the intrinsic reward of knowing God used me. Listen, Abraham Maslow was a pretty astute guy. Self-actualization. He was on to something. He was just a step or two away. Because the highest order of being is being like God. Amen.